Hi everyone, welcome back. So we're discussing today one of the most confounding stories in Jewish history, the sacrifice of Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah. This story gets a ton of attention in Judaism, books and commentary and an annual retelling. Rabbis have to come up with a new dazzling interpretation every year to enthrall their congregations with fresh insight. It's a story so famous that it has its own proper noun in Hebrew, ha'akedah, which means the binding. A reference to the fact that Isaac was tied to an altar to be sacrificed. This story is really quite simple. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham does it. But just before he's about to stab his son to death, an angel stops him. It's a very short story, but it has influenced Jewish thought and action for thousands of years, as well as Christianity, Islam, geography, art, literature, even war. You name it. A story this famous, you should really know it. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that they can be everyone our share to redeem the world. We kick off the Akeda story with the obvious first step, the birth of Isaac. At the beginning of chapter 21 in the book of Genesis, we are told that God remembered Sarah and fulfilled the promise from the previous year to cause Sarah to give birth. Abraham names him, circumcises him, and Sarah laughs with joy that she was able to give Abraham another son in his and her advanced age. Abraham at this point is 100 years old. But of course, you may remember that Isaac is actually not Abraham's first son. Ishmael, who was born to Hagar, Abraham and Sarah's slave, is actually the first. And of course, remember that a key part of the covenant with God is that Abraham will father a great nation, meaning that his son will be the key link in that chain. So how is it that Isaac ended up as the second forefather of Judaism and not his older, firstborn brother Ishmael? The answer is that Sarah insisted on kicking Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. It's a little vague as to why. The only thing the Bible tells us is that Sarah saw Ishmael, quote, making sport, unquote, which the rabbis later interpreted as meaning that Ishmael was a bad kid. This interpretation, perhaps unfairly, suggests that Sarah was worried about Ishmael having a negative influence on Isaac. Somewhere in here is a joke about this being the reason why Jewish kids are bad at PE class, but I, I don't know what it is yet, so just give me a minute. Anyway, Sarah tells Abraham to kick out Hagar and Ishmael since, says Sarah, she doesn't want her biological son Isaac to share his inheritance with Ishmael. The Bible tells us that Abraham was distressed and he didn't want to do it. But God tells Abraham not to worry, listen to Sarah, and that Isaac is the one who is supposed to continue making the great nation that was promised Abraham. Although, says God, Ishmael will also father a nation, so don't worry so much. So Abraham gives Hagar bread and a bottle of water and sends them into the wilderness in what is today the Negev desert. The water runs out and Hagar, not wishing to see the death of her child, puts him down on the ground and sits herself a distance away and cries. But strangely enough, it's not her cries that God hears, but Ishmael's, even though the Bible never records him actually saying a single word. His character is absolutely silent. But God tells Hagar to get up and keep going because Ishmael will father a nation. So she does. She sees a well filled with water to save his life. Ishmael grows up to become an archer. Hagar marries him to an Egyptian wife. And Ishmael will only ever meet his half-brother Isaac one time. By the way, this story of Hagar and Ishmael still has a lot of relevance today. That's because Ishmael, based on this story, is regarded as the father of Islam. 
Muslims consider that it is Ishmael, not Isaac, who is the true heir of Abraham's covenant with God. They consider Muhammad to be a direct descendant of Ishmael and worship Ishmael and Abraham as Muslim patriarchs. So you can see that such the power of this ancient work that even seemingly minor stories have major consequences in our contemporary world. Which brings us to the Akedah, the binding, or the almost sacrifice of Isaac. God approaches Abraham and says, Abraham. And Abraham responds, Hineni, which means, here I am. This response, Hineni, isn't meant to indicate that Abraham is physically here. I mean, it's not like God suddenly lost him. As every birthright staffer knows, that would be embarrassing for us all-knowing divine beings. No, Hineni is meant to indicate Abraham's spiritual willingness to respond to God's command. God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. This moment is often contrasted with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when Abraham argued with God to save the cities if just a few good people could be found. But here, when it comes to his own son, Abraham makes no argument. He takes Isaac and two of his servants the next morning and sets out for Moriah. Arriving there three days later, he makes Isaac carry the wood for the altar upon which he is to be sacrificed. Isaac's not digging his own grave, so much as carrying the materials for his own execution. At the top, while getting everything ready for the sacrifice, Isaac addresses Abraham as my father, and Abraham again responds with Hineni, here I am. Which is strange, because normally in the Bible, Hineni is something you say to God. Abraham said it, of course, just now, and later on Moses will say it at the burning bush, the prophet Isaiah will say it much later, but here Abraham is saying it to his young son Isaac. Isaac asks Abraham where is the lamb to make the sacrifice, and Abraham says that God will provide it, and with that he builds an altar with the wood and binds Isaac to it. And then Abraham stretches out his hand and draws out a knife with which to kill Isaac. Ooh, suspenseful. What is going to happen? Don't worry, because all of a sudden an angel of God appears and cries out Abraham's name twice, and again Abraham responds with, Hineni, here I am. And the angel says, stop what you're doing, do not harm the boy, for now I know that you are a God-fearing man. And suddenly Abraham sees a ram in the bushes, grabs it, and offers it as the sacrifice instead of Isaac. He and Isaac pack up their things, and God comes to Abraham to repeat the covenant for the fourth time in his life. That because Abraham did this thing, because Abraham did not withhold his only son from God, that God will bless Abraham, that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars and the sand, and essentially everything's going to be fantastic from this moment on. So, wow. This is a pretty bizarre story and kind of disheartening. The idea that someone could be so faithful to the voice of God as to willingly execute their own son sounds pretty awful to our ears. And it's not just us, and it's not just in our time. Jewish scholars and theologians throughout history have had to wrestle with the ethics and justice of this story, twisting themselves into knots to try to explain it away. So first of all is the most popular and obvious interpretation, which is that this story is a test of Abraham's loyalty to God. But if so, it raises a million difficult questions, like, why? Why does God need to test Abraham? The covenant has already been established. 
Abraham has accepted the will of God, has circumcised himself and all the men in his household, has been promised several times now to be the father of a great nation. So why the need for yet another, even more extreme test when Abraham has already proven himself? If God is all-knowing, and therefore already knows the outcome, why bother with a test to which you already know the answer? Maybe the idea is not for God to find an answer to the test, but for Abraham. He needs to discover for himself the depths of his faith in God as he continues along this journey to lead a great nation. In other words, God did know the outcome, but he set things up in a way that Abraham wouldn't. And as for Abraham, it's like, dude, does this thing make sense to you? First of all, God told you several times now that Isaac is going to be the means through which your ancestors form a great nation. So killing him wouldn't seem to fit into that plan, am I right? Also, while lawyers haven't been invented yet, you'll notice that God said to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, not to actually go so far as to kill him. So what's up with bringing out the knife, man? No one told you to take it that far. Another way we can think about things in the context of a test is that it was Abraham who was testing God, not the other way around. Whoa. The 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote an entire book, Fear and Trembling, examining the philosophical, ethical, and religious implications of the binding of Isaac. In one of his several interpretations, Kierkegaard argues that Abraham did act out of faith. Not faith like in blind obedience, but faith that God would not ultimately allow him to kill his own son. God would not do something so unethical. Kierkegaard terms this the teleological suspension of the ethical what the Jewish study Bible explains as the voice of God overriding the voice of human conscience. Abraham puts aside his ethical concerns because he has faith that God will bring about a just outcome. In other words, he relies on the love of God to override the human ethic, on the faith that God will act ethically. Which isn't a test of God exactly, but you could imagine how Abraham's faith could have been shattered if God had allowed him to actually kill Isaac. And for you philosophy majors, yes, I know I'm really simplifying things here. I'm trying to cover a lot of ground. But if we move beyond the notion of the story as a test, we can also think about an actual historical context for the Akedah. Human sacrifice, especially that of children, was a part of some ancient cultures. In fact, as your birthright bus drove up the steep hill to the walls of the old city of Jerusalem, you looked down on the valley of Hinnom below, which archaeologists have identified as the site of such ancient sacrifices. It was also customary to make a sacrifice to the gods, usually of one of your best animals, in celebration of striking a deal or completing a major project. Taking that notion to its logical conclusion, it's not irrational to think that Abraham might want to offer his favorite son as a sacrifice to God in honor of this everlasting covenant that was bestowed. But Judaism really frowns on human sacrifice. Hates it. There are a few kings in later biblical books who sacrifice their children, and the Bible is quite clear that they are the worst kings. We don't sacrifice humans. This concept, as obvious as it is to us today, represents a major break from the other ancient cultures, yet another way that Judaism set itself progressively apart from the ancient world. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, notes, Judaism holds that children are not the property of their parents. They are, and we all are, individuals in the eyes of God. Isaac's birth, remember, is miraculous. God made Sarah get pregnant. Nor is Isaac the firstborn son of Abraham, a theme found in other places in the Bible that contradicts the ancient notion that to the firstborn son always goes the inheritance. So it isn't Abraham's place in Judaism to have life or death power over Isaac. 
The story of the Akedah then is telling Jews, hey, look, we don't sacrifice humans. You want to sacrifice an animal to God? That's cool, but we don't do kids anymore. This story is an explanation then for why ancient Jewish cultural practice did not include human sacrifice. Rabbi Sachs says that we Jews actually need to reject Kierkegaard's notion of the suspension of the ethical, because this story isn't telling Jews to act unethically out of loyalty to God. Just the opposite. The story is saying, here's how far you can stretch things, and here's the red line that you can't cross. The red line being human sacrifice. Or, as Rabbi Sachs points out, in the modern notions of the Inquisition, suicide bombings, other criminal acts of religious fanaticism, the Akedah, in this view, isn't a test of Abraham's faith so much as a cautionary tale, placed there purposely to guide the Jewish audience on ethical behavior. Okay, so I have no idea if any of that made sense. Hopefully, it made a little bit of sense. And I only talked about two possible interpretations of the Akedah. I didn't even go down the rabbit hole of all the other ones. I left out a discussion about free will, or Isaac's perspective of the whole thing, or the role of the angel stopping Abraham instead of God. Suffice it to say that everyone from Maimonides to Caravaggio to Rembrandt to Bob Dylan has considered this story. So we already discussed how Islam relates to this story, often substituting Ishmael for Isaac. And although this story appears in the Quran, the sun isn't named, but it's still commemorated every year at the end of the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. In Christianity, well, this is just the first time that we're hearing a story about the son of some divine merit carrying the wood for his own sacrifice to God on behalf of humanity. Yes, these similarities between Isaac's binding and Jesus' death are not accidental. The binding of Isaac is considered a foretelling of the crucifixion. But it's not just ancient history. The Akedah resonates still today in contemporary Israel. Much was made after the 1967 Six-Day War that the generation which had founded Israel was by then too old to fight. So it was their children, their Isaacs, whose lives were sacrificed on behalf of the nation. As Israelis continued to debate the balance between the Zionist dream, political realities, the land of Israel, and the risk that Israeli soldiers are asked to take on behalf of those things, we are reminded that these stories from the Bible, as remote and esoteric as they might seem, actually do have a role in today's world. The people who told this story in ancient times had a reason for doing so. Thousands of years later, we're still telling the story for our own reasons. And that's why we ought to know it. Alright, so next episode we bring to a close the lives of Abraham and Sarah. But not before we get to what we might argue is one of the single most important stories in all of the Hebrew Bible. But you've probably never even heard of it. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is. You'll just have to tune in next time. Or as you millennials say, download. Thanks for listening, everyone. Next time. Next time.